This is the Naked Genetics Podcast, taking a look inside your genes. Imagine designing bacteria that can do whatever you want, from cleaning up oil spills to churning out the latest cancer treatments, ordering the biological parts online and building it in a couple of weeks. This is no longer the stuff of dreams, but the reality of synthetic biology. The idea was to build an organism that was able to create a drug and then could effectively turn itself into a pill. Plus, tracing European genes, how parasites manipulate our immune systems, I take part in a research project to find out if sociability is in my genes, and our gene of the month is looking for wedded bliss. This is the Naked Genetics podcast for October 2015 with me, Dr. Kat Arney, brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. Synthetic biology may be a relatively new term, but there's growing excitement about its potential. In simple terms, it's all about engineering life, breaking down the DNA instructions that tell cells to make particular molecules into smaller component parts or modules that can be stuck together in entirely new ways, such as creating bacteria bearing novel enzymes that can eat up oil spills or yeast cells that can produce life-saving drugs. To find out more about synthetic biology and where it all started, I spoke to Professor Richard Kitney, co-director of the Imperial College Hub for Synthetic Biology. Basically, the start of synthetic biology really occurred uh, with the, uh, a good point is with the initial sequencing of the human genome, uh, which you could say is around 2001. Uh, the reason for that is because in order to uh, sequence the human genome, it was necessary to develop uh, technology uh, to be able to read DNA accurately and at that time reasonably and expensively. And so the ability to read DNA uh, led to the idea that maybe it might be possible to actually modify DNA to produce uh, various uh, things like uh, changes in proteins or possibly uh, biological devices. Because going back to the late 70s and early 80s, people were using basic genetic engineering techniques to, to do this kind of thing. What made it different with the advent of sequencing? With the ability to accurately sequence DNA came the idea that uh, uh, it might be possible to engineer biology and so that then led to the concept of applying engineering principles and specifically standardisation, uh, modularisation, so making things into modules and being able to accurately define the uh, biology in terms of what's called characterisation. So that was another key difference. What do we mean when we refer to this, taking this engineering, this modular approach, the kind of bits and bobs approach to, to biology? When you put uh, DNA into a cell, that's natural DNA, the cell responds in a particular way to produce uh, uh, defined proteins, which lead through to things like skin cells, for example. Um, you can think of that as being the DNA, that is, as being the instruction set for the cell. So it's almost like a computer program for the cell. And if you modify the DNA uh, according to human design and you put it into the cell, so this is now synthetic DNA, which by the way is produced, by, produced chemically, then the cell responds by following essentially the computer program or the instruction set from the DNA and produces something different. 
uh, for example, oil or various kinds of biofuels. So that's another example. Or uh, various kinds of healthcare products. So it's effectively just designing a biological recipe that can make anything you can imagine. And a cell, if you can write it into DNA, a cell can make it. That, that sounds very simple. Does it always work that way? Uh, well, that's, that's the basic concept. And then, of course, you have to uh, then optimise the process. And so optimising the process involves, uh, obviously, a lot of uh, science, uh, but particularly you know, what kind of cell you're going to use. Some cells are better than others for, di for different applications. And is it always bacterial cells or yeast cells, or are there any human cells that you can stick these things into as well? Well, the, most, the majority of the field still works on bacterial cells. In terms of mammalian cells, uh, yes, there is a, a field of um, synthetic biology which is beginning to develop, which is uh, using mammalian cells for different applications. What sort of applications is this kind of technology suitable for? What can you do with it? Well, there are a wide range of applications. So I think you have to go back to the basic strategy. And the basic strategy employed by ourselves and many other groups around the world is the idea that you can design and build what's called platform technology. So this is technology which works across a wide range of applications. So you don't actually need to modify the basic technology. It works for different applications. So the applications uh, would be um, in it or are in areas such as healthcare, for example, um, the development of biosensors of various kinds, the development of uh, uh, biological logic. So this is the idea that um, you can develop the direct equivalent uh, to um, uh, electronic uh, logic, electronic computing, but in, bio in biology, various kinds of new materials, different ways for bioremediation, so cleaning up uh, so oil spills, etc., using bacteria which have been programmed to eat oil. There's, so there are some examples. And you talk about the idea of, of platforms and, and technology. So it's the idea that there's just almost a range like Lego bricks or component parts and someone says, I want to do this, that means I need this, this, this and this. And we just glue them together, put them in a cell and, and here we go. It sounds incredibly powerful. Yes, I mean, the, the basic idea is that you can take standard components, uh, which are well-defined. So by standard components, what I mean is uh, a particular section of DNA which has been synthetically produced and human designed that when you put that into a, a particular kind of cell you will get a particular kind of response which is well defined and that's that's called characterization all these bioparts they're stored in something called a registry which is essentially a database and you design, decide on the basis of a particular design which particular standard components or bioparts you want to use to make that design work it's a very new way of looking at something that's kind of almost seen as squishy, the squishy science of life and treating it as an engineering problem. Yes, well, I mean, many people in the field uh, think about synthetic biology as being engineering biology. And uh, that is a very common term which is used, for example, in the United States in relation to synthetic biology. So it is the application of engineering to the engineering of biology. That's essentially what synthetic biology is. There's lots of potential applications for this kind of technology and you're obviously talking to a lot of researchers uh, and a lot of companies that are interested. Is there anything that you've seen that you've gone, wow, that's really, really clever? Well, I think um, one of the uh, really clever things, frankly, is uh, one of my colleagues who's called Tom Ellis. 
who has uh, produced penicillin using yeast. I think that's pretty clever. There are also um, various uh, researchers in the world that are now producing uh, synthetic spider silk, and that will lead to uh, much stronger lighter materials. So they're two, two important examples. Richard Kitney from Imperial College's Synthetic Biology Hub. Also, while I was at Imperial, I caught up with James Field, who's just launched a new company called Lab Genius, capitalising on the growing interest in synthetic biology. I started by asking him what first got him into it. It all started when I was an undergraduate at Imperial College, and in my third year it was possible to take a module in synthetic biology. And it was really the first time that anyone said, biology is not just a, a descriptive science, you can, you can play around with it, you can build things and you can create things. Um, so it really stimulated us to kind of think about what we could create out of biology, out of living matter. And then out of that, um, when I graduated, I took part in the iGEM competition. So that was back in 2009. What's the iGEM competition? It sounds, sounds fun. So, <laughs> well, the iGEM competition is the International Genetic Engineering, Engineering Machine Competition. And it's this incredible organisation um, called the iGEM Foundation that puts it on. And every year, undergraduates from all over the world um, descend on Boston. They take to Boston the... Um, a presentation that describes an organism that they would have built over the course of the summer. So every, the undergraduates are given um, lab space and equipment so that they can design, build and test a, an organism um, to do a specific task. And what was yours? So in 2009, the idea was to build an organism that was able to create a drug and then could effectively turn itself into a pill. So um, in this case, it was a microbe that would produce an enzyme and then it would delete its own genome and grow a shell uh, so, that it, so that it could safely transport the enzyme um, through the stomach into the intestine. So that kind of enabled you to catch the bug, so to speak, for uh, synthetic biology. How did you take this forward? What's the question that you're trying to answer with the company that you've set up? The question at the heart of the company, which is called Lab Genius, is can living matter be designed in a fundamentally different way to the way in which we design everyday objects around us. So an engineer might design a table by drawing up a schematic of one or, or three or five tables, but the beauty of synthetic biology is that you can create designs for thousands upon thousands of different variants of a particular biological component, and then you can test those simultaneously and identify designs that, um, that perform particularly well. So it's a fundamentally different way in which you can engineer matter. It's kind of the way that evolution does it, I guess. It's kind of tweak, test, tweak, test, try, mutate. It's exactly the way that evolution does it. So the only difference, rather than making uh, a series of, of small number of mutations over time, we make a very, very, very large number simultaneously. So we, we can ex effectively accelerate the whole process of evolution dramatically. Um, and by controlling the, the conditions of selection, it's possible to screen million, millions upon millions of different genetic designs to find the ones that perform best. So effectively, it's like having a, a massive library of different DNA instructions that people can just rifle through to find the ones that, that they want for the thing that they're trying to make. That's exactly right. And the beauty of synthetic biology is it allows you to, to manufacture those different DNA designs. And then once, once you've made those designs, you can, in parallel, put them into many hundreds of thousands of different microbes. And then it's the microbes that each read those instructions that are encoded onto DNA 
um, and then you can screen for the different phenotypes of the microbes. What sort of things do you think people might be interested in, in rifling through your library for? So in the future, people may be trying to build organisms that perform differently to the ones that we have around us today. But right now, um, there's a lot of emphasis going on on redesigning proteins to do um, functions differently. So, for example, it may be the case that um, a pharmaceutical company who are making an antibody want to make that antibody so it binds to its target more tightly. Um, in that case, you can use this approach for screening millions upon millions of antibodies. So it's at the moment, the, the, the real application area for this technology is to fine-tune proteins to get them to do exactly what you want them to do. Overall, synthetic biology seems like an incredibly powerful technique that's relatively simple to, to start using, but has enormous numbers of potential applications. Like, how exciting does it feel to be, to be part of this and, and at the beginning, really, of, of the journey here? It feels absolutely incredible. Just the ability to, to sit down at a computer and to write an algorithm that will design millions of sequences, order those sequences, assemble them and be testing them within a week. It's, it's just absolutely incredible to do. And presumably not needing millions and millions of pounds and an enormous company, an enormous factory to do it. Right, ex exactly. The beauty is that evolution has built all of the machinery that you require to do synthetic biology. It's just the synthetic DNA that was the last component that was missing. And now we have access to that. So say if I came to your library and I found a piece of DNA that, that built exactly the, the molecule I wanted to build, uh, how could I go about testing it? You know, could I do it in my garage? What would I need to do next? Well, up till now, the barrier to entry to anyone who wants to perform a synthetic biology experiment has been relatively high, um, although that's all changing. So whilst you can code up your, your DNA sequence on the computer, you can now also have it built and test tested in the cloud. So there are um, a number of companies called Cloud Labs where you're able to send them your DNA sequence, um, maybe even virtually just a string of letters, and also the certain experiments that you want conducted, uh, and it will all be done remotely. And could anyone do this? You know, I'm sitting at home in my flat in East London and I think, oh, I wonder if I could design something that would do this. So you could certainly design it. Um, if you wanted the DNA synthesized, the different companies will each have their own certain screening procedures to make sure you're not trying to make anything nefarious. So there are safeguards in, in place. What sort of costs are we talking about? Certainly DNA synthesis, the price of, of actually making your gene has dropped dramatically over the last few years. Uh, so you can, you can have a gene sequence made from any, anything up to, you know, 500 pounds maybe. To get it tested is, is often a lot more expensive. Um, however, cloud labs are bringing those costs down. It almost seems like it's turning the traditional ways of doing drug development and design and, and this kind of thing completely on their head and, and opening it right up. It's really exciting. Yeah, it, it's creating a lot more opportunities and it's opening the field to uh, many more players. So it's going to be really exciting to see what happens in this space over the next few years. It seems like a really new, exciting area for people who are passionate about technology that could potentially really make a difference in this world. And that's the beauty of the field. It's completely interdisciplinary. So whoever you are, whatever your skill set, you can bring value to the field of synthetic biology. James Field from Lab Genius, based at Imperial College's Synthetic Biology Hub.
You're listening to the Naked Genetics Podcast with me, Kat Arney. Coming up, I'll be taking part in a study to find out if sociability is in my genes. But first, it's time for some of the latest news. The newspapers may be full of stories about refugees coming to Europe, fleeing war and hardship in other parts of the world. But when we look back through history, this is nothing new. A new study led by researchers at the University of Oxford shows that there's been extensive immigration into and around Europe for centuries, revealed by the mishmash of variations in the DNA of today's Europeans, according to lead author Christian Capelli. Basically what we do is to look for fragments of DNA that are present in human populations that are shared with other populations, as um, and, and this, uh, this sharing could be possibly the result of um, events of gene flow that occurred in the past. And by gene flow, presumably, you also mean people flow. When people um, move uh, close to each other, also re- resulted in exchange of genes. So yes, I mean, the result of gene flow in this case is also the result of people migrating and getting in contact and exchanging genes, yes. Exchanging genes sounds very romantic. <laughs> well, yeah, I'll say this, yes. <laughs> <laughs> How many people did you actually look at and what sort of level of detail were you going into to look at their DNA, to look at their genomes and see what bits had come from where? Well, we look at uh, approximately 2,000 people, 1,000 of them pretty much coming from uh, Western um, Eurasia and 1,000 coming from outside this area. How have you gone about analysing the DNA of these 2,000 people that you've looked at? Well, the classical approach is to use uh, the samples according to the label that has been provided when the samples have been collected. For example, Italians. Uh, what we instead have done is that we um, use the genetic data to identify the groups that we wanted to analyse. This way, we removed any possible um, subdivision that was present in the sample. So in this way, basically, we remove some level of confounding that uh, could be present. And in this way, we were able to maximize our chance to identify the, the signature that we were interested in. So broadly, paint me a picture of what your results show about the different populations in this area. We found signatures that are related to what we already know in the history of Europe, but also um, evidence for episodes that are not well recorded in the, um, uh, in the history of the, of the region. So, for example, presence of North African uh, genes in um, Iberia uh, and in, uh, in a period that is related to the presence of the uh, Muslim kingdom in, the, in Spain and Portugal. Um, at the same time, we also found contribution from Africa in Spain and in southern Italy that are uh, at, a different, at a different time, at a later time, and such contribution is not present in the uh, in the um, history books. So it's, it's, it was somehow surprising, but at the same time exciting because we were able to identify those different events. But at the same time, we see that a lot of those events that are occurring within Europe are centered around a thousand years ago. There seems to be a period in time where there was a lot of things happening in the in the continent. So a lot of migration contacts and possible. Uh, gene flow occurring and leaving those signatures across population in the in the area. How well does your data tie up with information from other sources, from other genetic studies or historical studies? Well, as I said, um, there are a number of events that align very well. Others seem to be less relevant in terms of the genetic contribution. As for example, uh, one thing that we uh, noticed was that despite the fact that the Romans uh, have been conquering um, very much Europe and North Africa and the Middle East at a certain point in time, uh, there is nothing like a 
Roman uh, contribution, that might be an Italian contribution, scattered across uh, Europe in a systematic way. Clearly, there, are, there is a, 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 a difference between cultural and political um, occupation and uh, on, the, on the other side, the demographic impact that those events may have had. So uh, there is no clear answer to your question in the sense that, uh, yes, we see uh, a lot of events that align very well, but also we find a lot of events that we don't um, know anything about specifically from the, from the history of, uh, of this region of the world. Christian Capelli from the University of Oxford, and that study was published in the journal Current Biology. You may never have heard of the disease lymphatic filariasis, but it affects 120 million people in 70 countries around the world, causing dramatic swelling of the limbs and other parts of the body, known as elephantiasis. It's caused by tiny parasitic worms transmitted between people by mosquito bites, but it can lie low in the body for many years, hiding from the immune system. So how do they do that? Michael Kimber from Iowa State University has been finding out. People have kind of looked previously at various secretions, things that the parasite release whilst they're inside the host. But up to this point, um, the nature of those secretions, nope, they really haven't given us much of an indication as to how these parasites manipulate people in order to cause the disease that they do. So what we wanted to do was to take a, a more detailed look at that interaction. What did you do to study this in more detail? Recently there has been a really invigorated uh, research focus on structures called exosomes. Exosomes are a particular type of small vesicle, extracellular vesicle, released by many, many cell types. And you can find these exosomes having important functions in things like cancer, other infectious diseases, autoimmune diseases, even neurodegenerative diseases. And the consensus seems to be that these exosomes act as cell-to-cell -cell effectors. So what they do is they carry a cargo that is capable of performing lots of biological function from the cell where it's released to a target cell, and then it can manipulate the biology of that target cell. So kind of like a little extracellular postman. In, in many respects, carrying a very dangerous package if you're a host organism, yes. How did you go about trying to look for these exosomes in this infection? With these parasites, we have the ability to maintain them in, in vitro, so we can take them out of the host and keep them alive for a while and study the things that they secrete. So we maintained some parasites in culture and uh, collected their secretions and profiled them with various techniques. And what's in them and what are they doing, more importantly? When we looked at the cargo of the exosomes secreted by these parasites, we found a preponderance of small RNAs called microRNAs. These are very interesting, aren't they? They're very hot right now. Very hot right now. Um, so they were identified probably 15, 20 years ago, maybe as far back as that. Um, they seem to be agents of genetic change. So these are small RNA species that humans and other animals, even plants, use to control the expression of genes. And the identification that parasites secrete microRNAs was interesting because it opens the door to the idea that a parasite is secreting an agent of genetic change and therefore manipulating gene expression within the host. So the idea would be that these little parcels produced by the parasite are somehow 
turning genes on and off in human cells. That's got pretty big implications for understanding the disease. Yeah, I, I think so. It's a, it's a very intriguing paradigm, and certainly it's a, a hypothesis that seems to be supported by other studies that are emerging at this time. Other infectious diseases, the same thing is also observed, where these pathogens seem to be able to secrete these exosomes containing microRNAs to specifically alter host immune responses and create conditions favourable to the uh, infecting agent. Iowa State University's Michael Kimber, and that study was published in PLOS Neglected Tropical Diseases. Now, are you one of those people who's the centre of attention in the pub or at a party? Or would you rather keep yourself to yourself? And could the difference be encoded in your genes? Our learned Pierce from the Social and Evolutionary Neuroscience Research Group at the University of Oxford is searching for the genes involved in sociability. And as a self-confessed social animal myself, I was keen to get involved. I caught up with her at the recent British Science Festival in Bradford and asked her to talk me through the study. People have looked at specific genes um, and have found that there is a genetic association with particular social behaviours, so things like empathy, so how easy you find it to um, see yourself in someone else's shoes. Um, and what we're doing in this study is to look at six different genes um, and to try and look at the interactions between them. So instead of just looking at one gene and one particular aspect of social behaviour or social thinking, we're looking at a whole range to try and understand the complexity of social behaviour. And what sort of genes are they? What do they, what do, they do? <laughs> so one of them is um, the oxytocin receptor gene. So oxytocin is a chemical in the brain associated primarily with love. So romantic bonds, mother-infant bonds. Um, another one we're looking at is testosterone, which is the male hormone. The way, that hormone. <laughs> exactly. Um, and also works in the brain. Um, we're also looking at beta endorphin, which is associated with runner's high. So it's basically the brain's uh, morphine so it gives you a high and we think that's associated with social bonding as well so if you get more endorphin you're kind of feeling good and you yeah, want to hang exactly. out with people exactly yes we're here at the British Science Association Science Festival mm -hmm. and I have just taken part in your studies. <laughs> you the, have. <laughs> the first thing I did was signed a nice consent form saying yes. that I understood the study. That's very yeah. important. Yes, exactly. And so then they put my hands on a scanner. What was that for? <laughs> so what we're doing there is um, measuring the length of your second digit, so your pointing finger, and your fourth digit, so your ring finger. Um, and the ratio between those two gives an indication of the amount of testosterone you were exposed to in the womb, so before you were born. Um, and that's linked to various behaviours uh, in adults, so things like aggression, things like affiliation, so again associated with social behaviour. And then I was taken to a laptop and sat down and, and made to do a kind of questionnaire, lots of pictures of people's eyes and then asking <laughs> me some personal questions about my friends, my family, my support networks. The eye question was trying to uh, work out how good you are at identifying emotions in other people's faces. Um, and that's an ability associated with empathy, so this being able to put yourself in someone else's shoes and understand them. And then there was questions about how you feel towards romantic partners 
partners and how you feel towards your best friends. So there we're trying to understand kind of pair bond behaviours, so between two people, very intimate relationships. Um, and there are also questions about your wider social network, so the people you go to for support, um, whether you talk to your neighbours and that kind of thing, um, and also how you felt towards your community. So we're covering a huge range of social behaviours. And then finally I was given a plastic test tube and I basically had to fill it with spit. You what, did? What's that for? <laughs> so from the spit we will extract your DNA to look at these particular genes. Um, and all of the data that you gave us was anonymous, so all of it was connected by a number not associated with your name. So unfortunately we can't tell you what your genes are or how sociable you are as an individual. Um, all we can tell people and all we will get out of this is to understand um, group level differences between different versions of these genes and whether they're associated with different versions of social behaviour. What sort of size of study and, and what sort of associations are you trying to find? Firstly we wanted 600 um, and it's going pretty well. The data we have is encouraging so now we're trying to get a thousand um, which is still a fairly small sample for a genetic study um, but this is the first time we've attempted this so it's a kind of pilot look at whether there are associations and maybe we'll expand Oxford University's Alunid Pierce, and she's hoping to publish those findings in a couple of years, so I'll be checking back with her later. And finally, it's time for our gene of the month, and this time it's matrimony. Another fruit fly gene, matrimony, encodes a protein that's found at high levels in fruit fly eggs, but rapidly vanishes after the egg is fertilised and starts growing into a little maggot. It gets its name from the fact that it's responsible for holding together pairs of chromosomes in the final stages of cell division when an egg is formed, a process known as meiosis, before they separate when the egg is fertilised at the very beginning of development. That's all for now. I'll be back next month finding out why elephants don't get cancer. If you've got any questions or feedback, just email me at genetics at thenakedscientist.com. You can also get in touch through the Naked Scientist Facebook page or tweet me at Naked Genetics. Every episode of the Naked Genetics podcast is on iTunes and online at nakedscientist.com slash genetics. The Naked Genetics podcast is brought to you in association with the Genetics Society, online at genetics.org.uk. I'll see you next month for another peek inside your genes. <laughs>